This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. Over the years, I'd guess about 20 people have written to us suggesting that we do a story about the mysterious, giant, concrete arrows that dot the U.S. landscape from New York to San Francisco. If you don't know, these are about 70 feet of what looks pretty much like sidewalk concrete in the shape of an arrow pointing vaguely west. They date from the 1930s and they were part of the transcontinental airway system that helped planes carrying mail find their way across the U.S. before the age of reliable radar and GPS. When they were operational, they were painted bright yellow and were accompanied by a tower topped with a bright rotating beacon. Today, the towers and paint are long gone, but many of the giant arrows remain, sometimes with weeds poking through the cracks in the concrete. They're super cool and fun to find on Google Maps, but that's about it. There's not too much more of a story there. I'm glad I know it. I'm pleased I got to tell you about it. It's totally a 99% invisible story. And I'm honored when people learn about them and they think, I need to send this to Roman. But ultimately, the arrows are not something on which we can hang a whole episode. We come across these kinds of stories all the time. Not just as suggestions from the audience, but in our own research, there are tons of little, interesting, would-be 99PI stories that get cut out of an episode or just don't warrant six weeks of production and 20 minutes of airtime for whatever reason, but we still kind of love them. So as a little change of pace, we thought we'd throw them all together in a couple of episodes featuring me interviewing the 99PI crew talking about their favorite mini-stories. That's what we've been calling them. I think you're going to dig it. I certainly had fun talking to everybody. So without further ado, first up is Sam Greenspan. One of my favorite things about this job is that I get to go do research at the University of California at Berkeley Library uh, (laughs) in the Environmental Design Library. And it's this modernist building. It's hideous from the outside. It's beautiful on the inside. The library itself has all these Vosily chairs that might actually be original to the Bauhaus. But anyway, so I was over there. I was doing research on the story that would eventually become the plot of Zion, which aired on the show last week. Yeah, and that's the that's the story about the sort of the founder's vision for the Church of Latter-day Saints in, in Salt Lake City and their efforts to create like an urban grid, like a really big urban grid. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So I was reading this article just in my research there called uh, the Mormon Village Genesis and Antecedents of the City of Zion Plan by Richard H. Jackson, published in the journal Brigham Young University Studies, 1977. Anyways, <laughs> just to set this up. So here's the author of this article talking about how most towns west of Appalachia all kind of developed the same way. And so, Roman, if you would, read this quote from him. Okay, let me see. The cities and towns which were founded during this period were remarkably similar, with the exception of Circleville, Ohio. Most town plats consisted of a regular grid pattern with straight streets crossing at right angles. I actually, I I grew up in Newark, Ohio, which is only about 30 miles away from Circleville, Ohio, so I know Circleville. So you've been to Circleville. <laughs> well, I don't know if I've been there. Like, it's famous for... Uh, Mounds, like Indian barrel mounds. Funny you should mention that because, well, Circleville is also known for something else or maybe not known for something else, but it has a quite amazing history of urban planning. <laughs> so let's, so what did you find out? Okay, so from that one glib note in this, uh, in this journal article about Mormon villages, I found this other article in the Journal of the Society of Architectural Historians from 1955, this guy <laughs> named John W. Reps, and he had an article entitled, Redevelopment in the 19th Century, colon, 
the squaring of Circleville. Squaring of Circleville. <laughs> okay. So in 1810, a local power broker in Pickaway County, Ohio, named Daniel Dreisbach, was deputized to establish a new town that would become the county seat. Dreisbach decided on a piece of land that had two Native American earthworks, mounds basically, one right, in the right. shape of a square and one in the shape of a circle. In central Ohio, these types of mounds are like really incorporated into the landscape. So like I grew up going to Indian Mound Mall okay. outside okay. of Newark, Ohio. And so they're in Newark, they're in Circleville, they're, they're all around there. So they're, they're a big part of the landscape and the kind of the lore and the mystique of central Ohio. And they really are like in the center of the city. Like there was no regard for them. They just put a city on top of the mound. So Circleville is totally a case of that. Daniel Dreisbach just wanted to plop a city right on top of this Native American mound. But what he did that his contemporaries found so weird was that he used the circular earthwork to build a city with a circular grid. So normally, so imagine we're kind of like floating over a city, right? Mm -hmm. You can kind of see, say we're floating over Chicago, right? Big, um, or let's say, we're, imagine we're floating over Salt Lake City, <laughs> right? <laughs> you have all these rectilinear roads. They're all kind of crossing at right angles. Right. Um, it's just sort of like, you know, a grid like graph paper sort of. Sure. So this looks more like the wheel of a pirate ship. Right. Like the steering, steering wheel. wheel, the steering wheel of a pirate ship, right? There's a sort of central node, and uh, and in Dreisbach's plan, there was the 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 county courthouse would be in the middle, and there's kind of a big plaza around it, and then there's a circular street around that, mm -hmm. and then another circular street around that one, and then there are these sort of um, there are these roads that all shoot off from the courthouse that all kind of connect outwards, that all lead back into uh, the center of the circle, which is all being formed by these circular. Indian Mound. Yeah, it was sort of the, the framework. Right. I imagine what's, what gave him the idea. Yeah. So Circleville's established early 1800s. People start moving in. But to the founder, Daniel Dreisbach's dismay, the Circlevillians hate it. Like <laughs> really, really hate it. It was dismissed as childish sentimentalism. Uh, people complained that the round streets made for awkwardly shaped lots. So they had to build their houses kind of in weird ways. Right. So by 1837, about 30 years after the founding of Circleville, the people were so fed up with this circular grid that they appealed to the Ohio State Assembly. They just wanted, they just wanted Circleville to look like the rest of Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted Circleville to be Squaresville. More or less. So they hired a company called the Circleville Squaring Company. <laughs> That's on the nose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wonder what else they did in town. <laughs> uh, and, and so the Circleville Squaring Company was hired to de-circle Circleville. Uh, it took about two decades, but eventually they were successful. So... Today, if you go to Google Earth and you look up Circleville, Ohio. Okay, let's see what we got here. You zoom in. Yeah. Yeah. It just is a grid. It looks like every other boring town <laughs> in central Ohio. The Circleville Squaring Company was extremely successful. Yeah, they, they did their job for sure. Yeah. All that remains are a few rounded buildings. I hear I haven't been there. There's the name of the town itself, which has never been changed. For, right. They have not yet called it Squaresville. <laughs> and the city's municipal seal, which if you look that up. Oh, that's pretty nice. That's like, it's like, it looks like the original urban plan. Yeah. I believe that's Daniel Dreisbach's original drawing or at least or some some kind of reproduction based on Dreisbach's original plan where you can see the courthouse in the middle and you can kind of see all the the uh, the radial streets coming off of it. Yeah. Oh, it looks really cool. It's actually a pretty good seal. 
it reveals some good history. That's so cool. I mean, don't put it on a flag. It's a good seal. <laughs> yeah, I think the flag should just be, you know, the, the, the steering wheel of a pirate ship. <laughs> yeah, that would work. <laughs> that would work. So I'm Kurt Colstead, and I am the digital director at 99% Invisible, as well as a web producer. What does that mean? Basically, it means I manage content and design on the website. So we produce articles for the website. We also produce companion pieces for every episode that contain additional materials like videos and links and images. So people listening to the episode can go on the website, listen to the episode, but also surf around for additional media. Right. So if you are a listener to 99% Invisible, but you've never been to the website, you are missing out because there's at least two and maybe three more stories a week that are on the website that have nothing to do with what is being broadcast on the air. Right. So in a lot of cases, we have an idea for a story, and there's just kind of not enough there for us to make a full episode out of it. It wouldn't be long enough. It wouldn't be in-depth enough. Or it's simply too visual. Uh, so a lot of cases, you know, if, if it's something that you need to absolutely need to see a graphic or an image or a video for the subject matter to make sense, we're going to have to make that into an article instead of an episode. But the topics are really the same. It's, you know, it's built environments. It's, you know, those 99% invisible things you see out in the world but don't know how to make sense of. And and so in a lot of cases, these are ideas that have been kicking around in the office for years, and now they've kind of finally found an outlet in the form of a web article. What's one that's like a quintessential or just like really popular one that, that would be fun to talk about? So the Dutch Reach has been a real hit this year, and I don't think anybody expected that. <laughs> um, it's a pretty short piece about a pretty simple fix to a pretty common problem that just resonated with uh, listeners and readers in a way that nobody could have guessed. So what is the Dutch Reach? The Dutch Reach is basically a technique for keeping bikers, cyclists, that is, from getting doored. So if you're driving along, you've got a, a biking lane on your right and parking to the right of that, and you pull over into a parking spot, and you go to open the car door, and a cyclist is coming, you might not see them. Mm -hmm. And that's because, in part, you're opening the door with your left hand, if you're an American driver, and you're just, you know, you look in the rearview mirror, you might not spot them, but there's one simple way to make sure that every time you open that car door, you're looking to see if cyclists are approaching, and that's by reaching over yourself with your other arm to open that door. So let me make sure I have this right. So you pull over, and instead of opening the car door with your left hand, which you'd be sort of inclined to do, you reach over with your right hand, and it causes you to kind of twist and look over your shoulder and really check if there's a cyclist coming. Exactly. And it's a very simple solution. It doesn't have any associated cost. It doesn't take any extra time. It's something any driver could do, and any bicyclist would be grateful that the driver is doing Mm -hmm. It's a solution we can all relate to. It's something that deals with a problem in the built environment that probably isn't going to be fixed anytime soon in other ways. Right. It would just cost too much and take too much time for cities to overhaul these systems. Of course, in an ideal world, we'd have protected bike lanes. Right. And, and you know, everything would be perfect. But <laughs> in the world we live in, this Dutch Reach solution, which comes from Holland, uh, hence the name, it gives drivers a way to, to do something simple that will help improve safety for everybody involved. 
That's so cool. And so that's, I mean, so like when people saw that, they just shared it like crazy because it was something you could like understand quickly. It was, it was sort of common sense, but it's one of those great, like the perfect sort of story like this is you wouldn't necessarily figure out on your own, but when you see it, it feels like common sense, you know? Exactly. It's the kind of solution that once we, you know, start teaching people to do this in driver's education, it would just become second nature. And we wouldn't even think about it as the Dutch reach. It would just be the way you open a car door. (laughs) That's good. Cool. All right. Thanks. All right. Tell me who you are. Yeah, my name is Emmett Fitzgerald. I'm the newest producer here at 99PI. So you just came on like a few months ago or something. Yeah, I came in um, to help out when, when Delaney was on maternity leave right. and uh, refused to leave. Yeah, we decided to keep you. We're good. <laughs> so we're telling all kinds of little stories that maybe, you know, we've researched as producers and reporters, but don't really quite qualify as a full 99PI stories, or they're like little things that were cut out of other stories. So um, so what is your mini story that you want to present? Yeah, so this is a story about a special soccer stadium in the northern Brazilian state of Amapá, which is like a super remote state. It's 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 pretty it's like it's big. It's like the size of Florida or something, but it only has six seven hundred thousand people. Wow! Um, and ninety percent of the state is just the Amazon rainforest, but there are a couple of little cities, including the capital city of Macapá, and Macapá. Is is known or is is sort of you know when tourists visit there, one of the things that they are uh, told about the city is that it's right on the equator, and there's right. a number of landmarks that kind of signify where the equator is in the city, including one of the central streets is called Avenida Equatorial, which uh, you know runs supposedly along the equator, and there's a red stripe right down the center right. of of the street. Um, and another thing that sits right on the equator is the the city's soccer stadium, which is a 10,000-person arena that's called Estadio Milton Correa. I don't know who that is. It's like it's like a local <laughs> soccer bureaucrat of some sort. But everyone locally just calls it Ozerão, which means the big zero after after the stadium's, you know, la- latitude. Latitude line, <laughs> right. So for being the equator is the zero point, right. Yeah. It's not just that the, the stadium itself sits on the latitude line, you know, on the equator, but that the equator runs directly down the midfield line of the of the football pitch of the soccer field, and so, you know, in every individual game, and these are games between small Brazilian professional soccer clubs, but because the midpoint line is the equator, it's sort of like each side in the game is is representing an entire hemisphere. <laughs> you know, these, these little small local club games are are really like this kind of you know a battle between north and south of the of the entire world. Um, at least in, until, until halftime <laughs> when the two sides when the two teams switch sides. Um, and and you know it's that's kind of all there is. <laughs> I looked up on YouTube some games and and here, you know, for the sake of it, here's a, a clip of someone scoring a goal at the big zero. Santos da Vila Belmiro em 
empata a partida no zerão em Macapá. Tell me your name. My name is Delaney Hall. And what do you do here? I'm a reporter and producer, and sometimes I edit stories. So what is your mini-story? So my mini-story actually came to us from one of our listeners, um, this woman named Carrie Nugent. And I've actually met her because I was at a conference, and she had on, very memorably, a camouflage baseball hat with orange letters that said, Asteroid hunter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she is an asteroid hunter. Um, she's an asteroid scientist at Caltech, and she actually has her own podcast called Space Pod, where she um, talks with different scientists who study space. So our listeners write in a lot saying you should do a story about this or you should do a story about that. Mm. And um, Carrie suggested one that I really liked. Oh, cool. So what is this about? So before I can tell you what Carrie suggested, I have to back up a little bit. So earlier this year, there was this enormous discovery um, in astronomy. And there's an experiment called the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Um, <laughs> yeah, and the, the shorter way to refer to it is LIGO. And um, scientists working on that experiment detected a signal from space that they turned into a sound. So I'm going to play the sound for you. And so am, am I listening for the one, the one that's going, what? Like yeah, what? <laughs> so what's that sound mean? That sound is the sound of two black holes colliding and unleashing the energy of a million trillion suns. <laughs> and it doesn't actually sound like much. And that's because the black holes collided a billion years ago. And so the sound has been traveling through space for all of those years, getting fainter and fainter as it goes. And by the time it actually reached us here on Earth, it was just that little whoop, whoop. <laughs> um, but the scientists amazingly heard it. Okay, so why is it so amazing? Because it is the first direct evidence of gravitational waves, which are basically ripples in space-time. And gravitational waves were predicted more than 100 years ago by Einstein in his theory of general relativity. And that theory totally reimagined the rules of physics. So basically, instead of a static framework, Einstein had this theory that matter and energy could actually distort the geometry of the universe and create these ripples of gravity. Um, and so he had theorized that gravitational waves exist, but this sound was the first evidence that they're real. And so it basically was evidence that this wild theory that Einstein had that had been mathematically proven, um, it, it was like the first physical evidence. Wow, that is amazing. That's yeah. super cool. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of mind-blowing. And um, the discovery generated a ton of news, obviously, um, but as Carrie, our listener, wrote in to point out, there's a design angle. Oh, I'm always in favor of design angles. <laughs> yes, design. <laughs> um, so 
what she was interested in and what she said you should really look at is the the instrument. Um, the machine that detected the sound is amazing and extremely sensitive. You know, it would have to be sensitive in order to pick up a sound that's been traveling through space and decaying for a billion years. Right. So Carrie said you should do a story about this instrument that detected the sound. Um, and, <laughs> and why well, didn't we do that story? Because it's so hard <laughs> to describe. It's like so much technical detail. I'm probably saying things that are wrong right now, even in a mini story. It's just it's. You know, it's too technically complex mm-hmm. um, and sort of difficult to describe on the radio. I mean, the machine itself is like part of it's in one part of the country and part of it's in another part of the country. And it's like these huge antennas and they like stretch and it's just <laughs> really complicated. But there was this one element to it that that I love and that I think um, we can do justice to right now. Okay, so, so lay it out for me. What, what, is the, what is this element? Yeah, so basically the detectors on this instrument, they had to be totally isolated from the vibrations and noises of the outside world because environmental noise might have interfered with what the scientists were actually trying to hear. So they're trying to hear this tiny, faint sound. And then meanwhile, there's just everyday noise all around them. There's trucks driving by. Right, everything. I mean, like, there's people talking, rumbles of the earth, wind, everything. Yeah. You have to eliminate all of that. Yeah, totally. Like a tree might fall over. There might be a thunderstorm. All of that noise can mess with the experiment. Sure. So basically to deal with that, the scientists, first of all, tried to isolate the detectors. And they put them in giant vacuums to isolate them from from all that outside noise. And then on top of that, the experiment employed two people who were environmental monitors. So their job was to figure out how environmental sound might interfere with the experiment. And Carrie actually talked to the guy who ran the experiment, Dr. Dave Reitze. He's the head of LIGO, and here he is. And they do tests. So they'll put speakers <laughs> in, in the vacuum tank, near the vacuum tanks, and you can play your favorite symphony, and then you measure its effect. Yeah, so they they played these recordings. They did stuff like play recordings of howling wolves. (laughs) And they even had a staff member ride away on his Harley to record the effect that the rumbling motor had on the experiment. There's a great entry um, by the team that was doing the environmental monitoring (laughs) saying, Bubba rides off in a motorcycle. (laughs) Bubba is one of our uh, facility managers in Hanford, and he was doing a test for them. And so over time, they generated this huge library of what different kinds of sonic interference might do to the experiment. And so when the genuine signal appeared, um, they would know that it wasn't just environmental noise. And it wasn't Bubba. That it wasn't Bubba, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's hard to convey, like, how crazy it is that they were able to detect this sound. And the other crazy thing is they detected it 
like right after they turned the experiment on. Yeah, yeah, so fast that they thought it must be a mistake. But it wasn't a mistake. This is one of the biggest scientific discoveries ever. Yeah, yeah. And I I really love this kind of science story or or this detail about sort of the process of science and just all the mundane everyday stuff that can get in the way of that grand magnificent discovery. That's so cool. So we should thank Carrie for her story. Yes, yes. Um, so thank you, Dr. Carrie Nugent. She's one of our listeners. And um, she did a whole interview with Dr. Dave Reitze, who's the head of LIGO. It's on her podcast. It's called Space Pod. And she just knows so much more about this stuff than I do. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have any questions or complaints. <laughs> yeah, direct them to Dr. Dr. Nugent. Dr. Nugent. Yeah. <laughs> Asteroid Hunter. So that was Mini Stories Volume 1 in the final episode of 2016. I interviewed all the 99PI producers for this project, so you'll hear the rest of the crew on the first episode of 2017. In the meantime, we're all going to take some time off, but I would also like to use this time to collect a few mini story suggestions from you, the listeners, kind of like the Concrete Arrows thing that I can talk about in between the stories from Katie, Sharif, and Avery on Mini Stories Volume 2. So get in touch via the contact page on our website, that's 99pi.org, or on Twitter at RomanMars or at 99pi.org, or you can comment on the Facebook post for this episode. If you are sad that you will not have a new 99% Invisible episode for the next couple of weeks, go download a bunch of the old ones. We almost never run repeats, but they're all there in the feed just waiting for you. Most of you probably haven't heard everything, and if you have heard everything, you probably won't remember everything. I barely remember them, and I was there when we made them. So just go download everyone. I hope you have some good time off coming your way, and I'll talk to you next year. 99% Invisible is Katie Mingle, Delaney Hall, Kurt Kolstad, Sharif Youssef, Sam Greenspan, Avery Truffleman, Emmett Fitzgerald, Taryn Mazza, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced on Radio Row in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. You can find the show and join discussions about the show on Facebook. You can tweet at me at Roman Mars and the show at 99pi.org. We're on Instagram and Tumblr too. But you won't really fully understand this show until you spend some time at 99pi.org. So back when I first had my twin boys, Maslow and Carver, huge chunks of my days were spent pushing them around the hills of the East Bay in a giant double stroller, listening to podcasts. So this was in early 2008, and that's when I discovered my first true love in podcasting. The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. It was one of the most popular comedy podcasts in the world, presented by Andy Zaltzman and John Oliver, who at the time was newly at The Daily Show. After it finished its run at the Times Online, it went independent, and I donated my own money to keep it going. It went fallow for a bit, while both John and Andy got busy with other things. And a while ago, I heard from Andy's sister, Radiotopia's own Helen Zaltzman, that Andy was looking to make it his primary focus again. And I'm incredibly excited that it's now part of Radiotopia with Andy and a rotating set of co-hosts, including Wyatt Snack, Nish Kumar, and my favorite, Helen Saltzman. With everything going on in the world, I'm just really excited that we have a hilarious news satire program with a global perspective that can react to what's going on. So please welcome them to Radiotopia and subscribe to The Bugle.
Radiotopia. Radiotopia.